Would you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 16? This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome uh, in the first century, probably mid-century, actually. I'll touch on a a little side note of of the dating of it a little later. Uh, And as a church family, for the sake of those of you who are visiting with us today, we've been slowly working our way through the book of Romans for quite some time. To tell you the truth, I don't really remember when we started it. We've taken breaks along the way. Uh, for various other uh, preaching emphases and such, but we are coming to the last chapter. My wife, who's, who's out of town, helping her mom pack up her uh, home and uh, helping her make a move back in South Carolina, um, she asked me last night, so are you going to finish Romans tomorrow? And I said, no, I think we have three messages left. And she's like, three messages out of Romans 16? And I said, yeah, if you were to read it, you would see there are at least three messages there. <laughs> so I, I, that's going to come back on me. I mean, <laughs> some of you are saying, oh, that was not nice to Kristen. But you who know Kristen, like, I'm not getting away with anything there. Yeah, I do feel a, I do feel a touch of sadness, honestly, to come to this last chapter. Uh, And so while I think that there are three more messages here, I do reserve the right to string it out to nine or ten. No, in in seriousness, though, we're going to read the first 16 verses. And as we do, I I want you to sense even a, maybe there's there's a touch of longing. I don't know that it would be sadness, per se, in Paul's heart. But this is a very personal portion, and it's easy to read through this and think, well, you know, he's finished all the great doctrinal writing and teaching uh, in those first 15 chapters, and he's just kind of wrapping things up. He is, but there's more to it. And as I read these 16 verses, I want you to pay attention to the personal relationships that were very obviously in place, and though they're just little, sometimes a single word describing a person, Or maybe just a line or two about the kind of work and service and ministry they were giving to the church. I I want you to think in terms of how precious these individuals are to the Apostle Paul. And then he's even going to make a few references here and there that remind us that it's not even just the church at Rome that was precious to him. All the churches that he was privileged to be connected to were precious to him. So you follow along as I read these first 16 verses. In Romans 16, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, And they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved, in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, 
And my beloved Stachys, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Isn't that quite a remarkable list of names and relationships? I want to go back to the first couple of verses, and, and we're looking first at a, a very significant commendation. Commending a patron is how I want you to think of this. We hear of patron saints, and, and historically that term means something a little different than what I think Paul is pointing to in these first couple of verses. But we meet a woman named Phoebe. Her name means radiant. Interestingly enough, it was a common name taken from pagan mythology referring to the moon goddess that you might know as Artemis or even Diana. There's quite a saga that uh, developed back in Ephesus as Paul was ministering there and the worshipers of, of Diana uh, started a riot, honestly, in response to Paul's ministry. We don't know her specific background and if she came from a pagan family, but obviously she had come to know Christ personally, and I think regardless of what details might lie in her past, it's a powerful reminder that whatever the origin of a person, whatever history might lie behind even a given name, like Phoebe, the power of Christ to transform a life and create a new legacy, a new identity, is evidenced in her life. Those of you who have read this before and are familiar with Phoebe would never associate her with some form of pagan worship or a false god like Artemis or Diana, but rather because of her life and even the things that Paul says here, she is identified with Christ, first of all, with his church and with his mission in the world. And you know, regardless of what's in your past, when you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you have turned your back on your sins, which is what repentance really is, and you have confessed and professed your faith in Jesus Christ, and that, that just means you've turned your heart toward him and said, he's my Lord, he's my Savior, he's the one I served, then you too will never be identified again by what lies in your past. It doesn't matter if it's family history or personal history, but to be united in, with Christ is to create a whole new identity, a whole new trajectory, a whole new history. You are not the sum total of a Christless past. You are not the sum total of your failures and sins, not when you come to Jesus, not when you find new life in him. Now notice there are three things that Paul tells us about her true identity and the first word is this. He refers to her so affectionately as our sister. There are occasions where the term sister and brother might be uh, a little overused, but it really can never be overused in the context of our 
spiritual family. For she truly is part of the family of Christ. And because she has been united to Christ personally, and Paul has been united to Christ, and all of these individuals that he is listing here are united to Christ, there is one family. It is a true statement that, that she is a sister. Let me remind you briefly that chapter 8 in Romans was that really powerful passage where we were taught that the Father has in reality adopted us, brought us into his family for Christ's sake, given us the full rights, the full inheritance of Jesus himself, sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, and it's by that Spirit that we now cry, Abba, Father, What a grand privilege. It's out of that that the relationships with one another flow so that we can truly say, my sister, my brother, my family. She's not only a true sister, but she is a servant of the church at Kenkria. A little geography for you. Kenkria was located about seven to eight miles east of Corinth, right on the coast. It was a a very important port city. And what Paul mentions about her service, uh, which would be the third term that he uses to describe her, a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, we typically think of a patron as somebody who provides financial resources, and that's true. It's probably part of what was included there, but if you were to go back and read even some of the classical Greek literature and writings, you would find that that term was a little broader than just you know, writing big checks for big causes. It actually has to do or includes um, a, a defense of the lower class. Again, we don't know the details, so we have to be careful here. What Paul does tell us is that she has been a patron of many, and then he includes himself in that. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that especially in that day and age, and we touched on this briefly, that you know, there, there weren't big hotel chains and Airbnb and Verbo and all of that. If you were making a trip, especially as a Christian, you would, you would try to connect with other believers in the cities or towns where you were traveling because safety was a real concern and a real issue. And here's a woman who, in all likelihood, opened her home frequently to out-of-town guests, believers from other places, who opened her pocketbook, there's an old term, um, that, that she might share her material resources, whether it be money itself or food or beverage, um, probably had an extensive ministry of hospitality. And she has distinguished herself. And because of that, Paul says, I commend her to you. That is, I'm presenting her as worthy of your recognition. And it's not just a recognition like, hey, give her a plaque, you know, give her a gift certificate to you know, the local Starbucks to say thanks. Now, there are two aspects of it. Look at it in verse 2, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and that you may help her. Now, there's another little interesting uh, theory that's developed. Again, it's not explicitly stated in the Scriptures, but it actually seems very likely that Phoebe is the one that Paul handed the letter uh, that we know as Romans to her and said, Would you make this trip and deliver this to the church at Rome? It seems likely. Um, Again, it's not stated outright, but because of, of her capacity to pay her own way and to travel, 
uh, a woman of means and resources and probably gathered enough travel companions to make it a, as pleasant and safe a journey as possible. Um, and in the context of how he's closing out this letter, uh, that it seems reasonable that she was the one who delivered the letter that we know and love as Romans. One author writes that by sea, the trip was about 700 miles and could take five to 10 days in good weather. There was an alternative route, a combination of sea and land that followed the Adriatic Sea. That distance was about 800 miles. There were paved roads and travelers uh, often rode donkeys and stayed in inns along the way. But that second route that I've mentioned took considerably more time, three to four weeks. And if she had made the trip in the winter, one author notes, then that that 800-mile trek was the only open route for travelers. And I think it's interesting that Paul says, welcome her and help her in whatever she may need from you. So the one who is typically on the giving end now is on the receiving end, and rightly so. The one who has been so caring and hospitable to others will now be in need of care and hospitality herself. And you know, that's how the family of God operates. Jesus said, freely you've received, freely now you give. And Phoebe is worthy of this commendation and consideration because she has distinguished herself as a sister, as a saint, or a servant, and as a patron, fully invested in the family of God, fully invested in the gospel mission. I wonder if you have that kind of love for the church. Love for the church begins with love for Christ, and love for Christ begins as you really learn and and believe he loves you. The Apostle John wrote in his first letter, we love God because he first loved us. I would want to be careful that I don't simply say, well, we ought to follow the example of Phoebe. We should, but make sure you understand the deep well from which she was drawing out this hospitality and care for other people's people. Here is a woman who clearly, as so many others, had come under the life-changing power of Christ's love for her. So if you say, I, I don't love the church in a way that is similar to Phoebe's, maybe it's because you haven't first come under the transformational power of God's love for you in Jesus. Do you love the mission of the church? Are you committed to what Christ himself is committed to? And that is building the church in the world. Are you looking for ways to invest your life, your time, your resources in Christ's mission? I'm struck by the fact that at a level above Paul's writing and saying, I commend Phoebe to you. I mean, this is the eternal word of God. Not one not, not one. Dot, not one crossing of a T will be lost. And God has preserved forever his commendation of Phoebe. And believers who live their lives in this particular way will receive God's commendation and are worthy of commendation. Well, that's part one. I want us to consider how Paul greets the saints. And there are many to be greeted. 
And you know what a greeting is. I mean, we were greeting one another on the way in here, and that is certainly part of it. It's a, hey, how are you? Um, you know, so-and-so says to tell you hello. I mean, we have all kinds of forms of greeting. Um, and some of them actually include embracing one another. Some of you do that more readily than others. That probably depends on how you grew up, how you're wired up. Um, some of you are a little more, you know, a little more reserved. I'll put it that way. Um, and, then, and then some of us are always caught in between. We're very eager and willing to do it, but we're not sure if that's going to make the other person uncomfortable. So you, you, do, you ever, do you ever have those moments where you're kind of like, hey, good to see you, and, and then you realize, you know, his hands or her hands aren't going up, and I look like I'm about, you know, like going to flap my wings here or whatever. Well, embracing is actually part of what this terminology includes. And, and the kind of greeting here obviously presupposes that there's a, a personal relationship. And there are several aspects that uh, merit our attention this morning. What, it's it's kind of like, the why is this greeting so significant? And first of all, there's a beautiful diversity in the body of Christ that emerges as we read these next several verses. You say, what are you talking about? Well, it's not just that there are 26 individuals, at least, who are referred to here, 24 by name, two that are not named, and then other groups, the church in their house, the family of. So at minimum, it's 26 people, and it doesn't take much imagination at all to push that out and say, man, there's a huge group of people. And then as you begin to look through it, you're going to find it's, it's also a group that includes men and women. And we need to notice that of these 24 names that are given, nine of them uh, are actually ladies. In the context, and you need to travel back in time with me, this is actually quite remarkable. Because at that time period, women were, in fact, viewed as second-class citizens, but not in the church of Christ. Gender matters because God has created by his infinite wisdom and designed male and female, and from creation forward, his intention has always been that both women and men be held in highest regard, and neither should tread over the other or diminish the value of the other. It's the result of sin and corruption in the world that one gender would be devalued, and in Paul's context, it was the women. And that's historically what it's tended to be. It matters to God. And when the gospel begins to permeate our hearts and our minds, it actually begins to transform culture. And there's a touch of uh, uh, strong evidence here, really, more than a touch, strong evidence to say that these women are cherished, and rightfully so. So there's a diversity gender-wise, men and women referred to here. Jews and Gentiles are in this list. I won't take time to point out all that we are sure. These are the Jewish uh, people, but there are some that are it's clearly a Jewish name. There are others where he just uses the term kinsman. My countrymen is how we would say it. And then there are Gentiles, Roman, Greek, probably a variety of nationalities. And then a third category begins to emerge, slaves and free. Author and commentator John Stott notes that, the, that people have long considered it quite likely that the Aristobulus mentioned in verse 10 was the grandson of Herod the Great and friend of the emperor Claudius and that Narcissus in, in verse 11 was none other than the well-known rich and powerful freedman who exercised great influence on Claudius. Now, the, the way Paul refers to greet the families of these two individuals 
we don't have reason to believe that the, that the uh, two powerful individuals, Aristobulus and Narcissus, were themselves believers, but it's clear that members of their family had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And there's another little interesting study um, that the author J.B. Lightfoot, who his commentaries are regarded as kind of classic works on the New Testament in particular, he has a commentary in Philippians where he actually includes a little brief study on this list of Romans 16 and Caesar's household and uh, did some digging uh, to discover that there are actually archaeological finds of Roman inscriptions that include a number of the very names that we're reading in this list. Now, you can't say emphatically the people on, the, on Paul's list are the same people that are being written about on these inscriptions, but it just shows us that in that period of time and in those particular uh, domains of Caesar's household that there were people by the names of Amplius and Urbanus and Stachys and Apelles and Aristobulus and Tryphena and Tryphosa and, and others that exist. And some of those names are commonly known to have been names of slaves. And some of those names are commonly known to be names of people who had great power or wealth. And here you have both slave and free in the same body. See, that's what Jesus does when he begins to rescue and redeem. Aren't you glad that the gospel didn't come to the elite? Paul actually wrote to the Corinthians, it's not many wise, not many mighty, not many wealthy who've been converted. God actually chose the foolish and weak of the world. And he did it in order to confound the mighty, to confound the elite. The gospel doesn't make sense in, at, at one level in our world. It's counterintuitive, but the Lord has rescued and redeemed and created a beautiful diversity. Second thought for you, it's a Christ-created unity. As we were reading through that passage, some of you may have begun to notice that he uses the little phrase, in Christ, four times, and he uses the little phrase, in the Lord, five times, and, and it's tied to relationships. Even as he's greeting people, he's, he is aware of the fact that the relationship he has with them is a direct result of what the Lord has done for him and for these beloved ones. And out of that flows that family language. We touched on it with Phoebe, who's referred to as a sister. The brothers, verse 14. The, uh, he refers to Ruth as his mother, who he says has been a mother to me. And then he uses the term beloved in verses five, eight, nine, and 12. All of that family relationship and family affection is the result of this Christ-created unity. And then thirdly, look at verse 3 with me. There's a variety of service, and this is where we're going to take just a few minutes to, to briefly summarize some of, the, some of the things that we can learn and know. Look at verse 3 with me. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now, we, we know quite a bit about this couple. Prisca is a shortened version of Priscilla. And uh, this couple occurs, we first meet them uh, in Acts 18, where Paul is headed to Corinth, and he's beginning ministry there. And there, this couple uh, is present, and they happen to share the same trade. They're tent makers, as Paul was a trained and skilled 
tent maker, but it was not their shared vocation that built this relationship. It's actually Christ and the gospel mission that knit their hearts together and intertwined the path of life for many years thereafter. From Corinth, they actually traveled to Ephesus with Paul, and they spent significant time there. And there's an interesting thing that Acts 18 mentions uh, about that ministry, and that is a, a mighty preacher named Apollos was there, but he was uh, a little thin on some knowledge and understanding, and it was Priscilla and Aquila who actually instructed him and filled out his knowledge of the truth, and we have every reason to believe that his preaching ministry deepened and strengthened as a direct result of their discipleship. Well, here at this point, because they're included in this greeting, it's apparent that they've made their way back to Rome, and they, were, they had been expelled from Rome by one of, the, one of the emperors early on. And here they are again, um, not only serving in the mission of Christ, but now opening their home, as they apparently did in Corinth and Ephesus, and certainly here in Rome, uh, the church that meets at their house. Little sidebar, it wouldn't be for another 200 years that churches actually began to purchase their own property and build their own buildings like we're used to. So house churches were, were very common. But back to this greeting, Christ being the centerpiece of life for them, they are fellow workers with Paul. Notice verse 4, they risked their necks. I wish we knew the story here. Maybe it's tied to the riot in Ephesus and, and how they put themselves out there to partner with Paul and perhaps they were in the middle of that, that life-threatening situation that unfolded at Ephesus. We don't know for certain, but here they are described as people who put their necks on the line. What does that tell you about the power of Christ and his gospel? That people had every reason to build a successful tent-making business and apparently had built a lucrative business to travel as they did, to always end up with a house as they did, that they could bring other people in uh, to, for the church to assemble in their property. Clearly people of means, but their life was lived for so much more than material possessions and business success. Paul is grateful and comments that all the churches are grateful for this much respected and loved couple. What a service they have given. Then he says, greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. The word convert is literally first fruits, and there's an allusion to gospel promises throughout the scriptures that God will bring in a harvest of souls. It'll be a joy to meet Eponidas one day when we're all gathered in heaven and say, tell us the whole story. That's as much as we know, but he's precious to Paul. The first fruits of a harvest that at that point is underway. More is coming. There's every reason to be hopeful as we proclaim Christ and, and praise God for the one or two or the five or ten that we might see. But Lord, are there not hundreds more because you've promised? Eponidas is a reminder that if God gives one, more coming. Verse six, he says, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. And he uses a term that speaks of wearisome labor, a woman who has worn herself out. Doesn't tell us the specifics, doesn't tell us exactly what she is working hard in other than generally speaking the gospel mission. But here he is grateful, mindful of the labor of this dear woman. And here again, the Lord is inscribed in his eternal word this testimony 
Others may never know what you do for the mission of Christ, but God himself knows. Others probably don't know how tired you are for the investment you've made in prayer or giving of yourself or caring for those who are in need, but God does. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, another couple who are mentioned. He refers to them as my kinsmen, so of Jewish background, my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So here he is mindful that while he was still actively persecuting the church, this couple had come to faith in Christ, begun to serve, and as Paul had experienced imprisonment for the sake of the gospel, they too have sacrificed much. That little phrase, well known among the apostles, is interesting. It could be simply that they are just well known for this uh, life of service and ministry and imprisonment, but the terminology there could also have reference to the fact that they are known as a kind of apostle, small a apostle. That term just means sent one in a very broad and generic sense. And there are some who actually would say, I think that the bigger point that Paul is making is that they are known uh, among a, a category of people who are missionaries. They're messengers of the gospel, sent out with the good news, and well known for it. Verse 8, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. And I want to just highlight the term beloved Again, the family relationship that develops in union with Christ. But here are men that are dearly loved by Paul and cherished for Christ's sake. Verse 10, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. That word approved has the idea of reliable, dependable. There's something about this individual that compels recognition, and we are thankful for it. And then Paul says, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus, Greet my kinsman, Herodian, and that term likely is a reference to a servant in the household of Herod. And, and I'm struck again by the fact that though some of these powerful rulers like Herod, like Claudius, like other Caesars who would come, uh, were just pagan to the core, hostile toward the gospel, yet even in their own households, there were people who were hearing the gospel and responding in faith, in repentance, and developing these most intimate relationships with those like Paul. What a kind Savior. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Now there are two things that, um, again, seem reasonable. It's not definitively spelled out. Uh, first is that they're likely sisters. Because these are ladies' names, and they're so close and because they're paired together, there are many who say probably sisters. Second of all, that they probably belong to the class of slaves or household servants. Maybe even uh, for the family of Aristobulus, part of that Herodian household. Both of these names are found on inscriptions associated with the emperor's servants uh, from that time period. Again, don't you wish we knew the whole story? I was listening to one uh, preacher this week, because I, I like to listen to other sermons in books that I'm preaching through, and a couple of pastors in particular, but one, this one pastor commended these two names to say, if any of you ever are blessed with twin daughters, you should consider naming them, and I thought, yeah, 
I don't know how many takers there would be uh, for Tryphena and Tryphosa. Then he says, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Like Mary, who we just met a couple of verses before, Persis is one who has wearied himself in serving the Lord in his church. And then verse 13 is an interesting little uh, side note. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. There's one other place in the Gospel of Mark where a man named Rufus appears. And it, it appears in a portion of Mark 15 where Mark is identifying a character named Simon who, when our Lord was coming out of Jerusalem, carrying the cross to Golgotha, collapsed under the weight of the cross, and the Roman soldiers grabbed a man who was nearby named Simon and said, you carry the cross. And as Mark gives that detail of the suffering and crucifixion of Christ, he tells his audience that Simon is the father of Rufus and names one other son there. Well, it's interesting that Mark wrote that gospel while he was spending time in Rome. And he writes it in a way that it's kind of like, and we all know who Rufus is, right? Well, so Paul is writing this letter to Rome and says, greet Rufus. It seems really likely that it's the same guy. And this is a little sweet note to me, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Remember Paul's testimony um, where he says, I count all things as lost for the sake of Christ? There are many who think that Paul really did lose everything when he turned away from Judaism and Pharisaism and began to follow Christ. While we have no details about his own personal history, it was common in those days, it's common in, in this day in some respects, that when a committed Jewish person leaves all of that behind, that families will hold funerals for that individual and say, you are dead to me. Now, whether that's actually what happened to Paul or not, it is clear that by the way he lived his life, he wasn't holding on to some of those uh, standard benefits and blessings that we know as far as family and community and a home and a stable livelihood and all of that. And I think it is interesting here, and it is a little bit of sanctified speculation to consider how this particular woman, who's not named, stepped in and became to Paul something that he may have truly lacked, a mother to me. Then he mentions five names in verse 14, and these are names commonly given to slaves of that day. And at the end of verse 14 refers to the brothers who are with them, likely members of the same house church. And then verse 15, another couple, Philologus and Julia, and then Nerus and his sister. Um, some have speculated that Nerus and his sister might be the children of Philologus and Julia. We have no way to know. And finally, Olympus. Nothing particularly stated about these individuals, only that they are dear for Christ's sake. And, and Paul wraps it up by saying, and all the saints who are with them, greetings. A variety of service, a Christ-centered unity, a beautiful diversity. A last little thought. 
but all of these are vital relationships. And it's not just between Paul and these individuals. What I want you to see is how Paul says, um, and I'm gonna skip over the first part of verse 16. Go to the end with me, if you will. All the churches of Christ greet you. It becomes clear that it's more than just Paul and his friends, but there are multiple churches that are directly related one to another. And I pause to to ask you to consider with me, what are we really a part of? It's quite extraordinary. If people say to you, are you a part of a church, your first response would be, for those of you who are members and regular attenders here, yeah, I go to Gospel Hope. But you know, we're just a, a local gathering, part of a much bigger church. And you know, while the number of historic Christians and I use that term intentionally, might be rather small in our particular state. Do you know that the church around the world, it's enormous, and we don't really know how big it is. Estimates from China alone, 120 million. India, I've seen estimates at 28 million. I read just this week that in the continent of Africa, 185 million. South America, maybe over 120 million. I mean, nobody really knows. We don't even know in this room who are the true followers of Jesus and who aren't. I mean, we all look like it. We all clean up pretty nicely, right? But only you know the true status of your relationship with the God who created you and sent his son into the world to die for you. What a privilege to be a part of something so vast, so eternal. All the churches of Christ greet you. But go back to the first part of the verse because there's something here that I don't want to skip over and just say, ah, it's a cultural thing. It is, but it isn't. It's more than that. And that is in verse 16, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. This is not the only place in his letters. He, he gives the same word of instruction in 1 Corinthians 16, 20 and 2 Corinthians 13, 12. And even Peter uses the same instruction in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 14. But I want you to notice, first of all, there's a holy expression of Christian affection. That, that's what would protect against any thought that this is somehow an inappropriate or even erotic expression of, of fleshly love or attraction. The word holy means set apart to God. Separated from sin, separated from whatever corrupts and set apart to God. There is a moral purity, there is a ritual purity always associated with this word. And so the, the kiss, whatever form it took, was first of all holy. And at the end of the day, a kiss is simply a physical token or expression of love or friendship. Some of you grew up in cultures where, I mean, for as long as you can remember, when, when friends and family, sometimes even a stranger, a guest walks through your doors, there are kisses given. For those of us who didn't grow up like that, you know, kisses were reserved for, you know, more special relationships. Um, a friend of mine, and I, I somehow fell into this years ago, but early in college, um, you know, guys would sometimes just share 
drinks, especially at athletic events. You know, you share water bottles and all that. We just didn't think a thing about it until I had one really close friend, and he would, he would like go into a panic if you grabbed his, you know, drink, his bottle or a can or whatever and just take a swig. And he was like, no, 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 you absolutely cannot do that. I'm like, what's the deal? We're friends. He's like, I, I don't drink after anyone I'm unwilling to kiss. I thought, well, then I'm excluded. I mean, we're really good friends, but we're, we're not at that level of friendship and never will be. And that kind of took hold of my heart, and it's been a good policy, I think, you know, personally. So if you ever ask me, can I have, can I have a drink of your drink? I'll probably say, oh, no. <clears throat> we recognize in, in our culture that kisses are special, And there's something very special here that Paul is actually pointing to. And I think there is allowance. Humorously, I I found a a quotation from the old commentator J.B. Phillips who has long been with the Lord. And he wrote, although what form the kiss should take will vary according to culture, for those of us who live in the West, uh, his recommendation was give one another a hearty handshake. I thought, okay. But I don't want us to miss how remarkable it is, especially coming from the former Pharisee and persecutor, Paul, that God has so transformed his heart, so transformed his perspective, so transformed his relationships that people he once sought opportunity to put to death, he is now sending the the most tender greetings and actually saying to them, because he's not there yet, could you all just give one another a kiss? That's what some of you grandpas and grandmas do when you talk to your adult children on the phone and then you get the update on your grandkids. Haven't some of you said that probably? Kiss my grandbabies. Because there's something so personal, so intimate, so treasured and cherished that it really can't be conveyed with even a hearty handshake. What a change in the violent, blaspheming, persecuting Paul. What a change in Jews and Gentiles and free people and slaves. Men who would not esteem a woman because of the cultural pressures and expectations of the day. What a transformation that now there really is a holy expression of love 